Hi, everybody. Welcome to 2ZQ Hot Takes, where we discuss issues both big and small. I am your host, the very handsome Tim Kirk, and today I'll be talking about the evolution of gayborhoods. I think a lot of us associate gayborhoods with fashionable muscle queens in skimpy attire, visiting shops, displaying rainbow flags, gay bars, and the subcultural demimonde that has long signified gay neighborhoods, but that has evolved just like the idea of a gayborhood. The entire digital gayborhood is another dimension to contend with altogether, although it quite often overlaps with the brick-and-mortar gayborhood. My personal experience started in the West Village on Christopher Street at Boots and Saddle, which was dark, mysterious, scary, intriguing, and alluring. I was amazed at how comfortable guys were walking with each other, holding hands, making out, and cruising me which completely unnerved me for the first few times because I was being cruised by more mature, experienced guys, and I was shocked that they actually were interested in doing things to my baby fat. I didn't know what the hell I wanted, but I knew I wanted to be around other guys, especially naked ones. There was also a bathhouse culture, which for the most part is not spoken of as matter-of-factly as it once was, might be a relic of the past, and even though we still have them, they aren't as popular as they were. Funny, because the largest bathhouses in the city were in the East Village, the New York Club and the New St. Mark's Baths. And the idea of bathhouses being obsolete is odd to me, because if you are single, I always felt it was much safer and much more stimulating to be in the presence of many other guys instead of going to one guy's place and who knows what strangeness to have in store for you once you get inside. And bathhouses had amenities. You could stroll, cruise, shower, get something to eat, drink, read, watch a video, explore, and sample. You also learned how to commune with your gay brethren. Or not. But things change. For me, the idea of gayborhoods, which was incidentally coined in Philadelphia in 1995 for the area known as Center City, are symbolized by the West Village. Even though there was great wealth and a number of gay landmarks in the West Village, much of the one and only Christopher Street has become a dreary husk of its former self, for the time being anyway. Chelsea, which now, anecdotally, seems to be having a renaissance of gay men moving in after all the straight families decided to move in on us during the aughts. I'm seeing a noticeable rise in the amount of handsome young 30-somethings holding hands as they stroll the avenues. Hell's Kitchen, which is now pulsing a tiny little bit less than before, but since it has the most and the most well-known spots, it is still hot. Midtown East, which technically could never really be considered a gayborhood, uh, was always, always, always uh, confirmed bachelor's paradise. All the closet cases lived there, and the hustlers flourished, still do. Think of Brooklyn, Williamsburg, and Queens, by and large Jackson Heights, and, and by that, Queens bars have prospered and may at one time have been considered a bit more lowbrow, but they are welcoming and quite diverse. Of course, Fire Island, Provincetown, the gayborhood of Philadelphia, Rehoboth Beach, Key West, Fort Lauderdale and Wilton Manors, Boys Town in Chicago, the Castro in San Francisco, and the gay village in Montreal. And it seems that my perceptions are just that, perceptions, and they are somewhat antiquated. According to Road Snacks, the 10 gayest cities in the U.S. are 
Number one, San Francisco. Number two, St. Petersburg, Florida. Three, Washington, D.C. Four, Portland, Oregon. Five, Oakland, California. Six, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Seven, Atlanta, Georgia. Eight, Denver, Colorado. Nine, Long Beach, California. Ten, Seattle, Washington. And New York isn't even on the list. And even though a lot of us feel that San Francisco represents the gay life in totality, the actual neighborhood of San Francisco has changed and moved over the course of time since the gold rush. The locale has moved at least four times. Mashable has a very good article about the neighborhood entitled, Gayborhoods Aren't Dead. In fact, there are more of them than you think. Amin Gaziani, assistant professor of sociology at the University of British Columbia, writes, Gayborhoods aren't singular sites, but have instead become cultural archipelagos, a series of queer islands connected by sexuality and gender. And cities will often have more than one of them. Gaziani defines gayborhoods as having four defining features. It's a geographical center of LGBTQ people, including queer tourists. It has a high density of LGBTQ residents. It's a commercial center of businesses catering to the queer and trans community. And it's a cultural concentration of power. The neighborhood is home to large amounts of organizations, businesses, and nonprofits that cater to the LGBTQ individuals. Not everyone who lives in a neighborhood self-identifies as LGBTQ, though a statistically sizable portion does. The article states, Gayborhoods formed as gay culture itself emerged in the post-war period and began to flourish. Think New York City's West Village in the Stonewall era or San Francisco's Castro District in the 1950s. These were radical communities, home to intergenerational bathhouses, butch femme bars, and sites of protest. In the early 2000s, critics began to lament the supposed loss of these neighborhoods, citing late-stage gentrification, the global circulation of capital, changes in the flow of migration, liberalizing attitudes towards homosexuality, social acceptance and assimilation, and the normalization of geocoded mobile apps, which have altered how places facilitate social and sexual connections, Gaziani writes. The critics weren't entirely wrong. Many traditional neighborhoods have indeed gentrified, and queer people have dispersed to other neighborhoods. But even as they've changed, neighborhoods have yet to disappear. Actually, they continue to bloom. You just won't see them if you're looking in the same singular places. That's partly because it's a misconception that cities only have one neighborhood. Historically, some cities have had more than one neighborhood, but not all of them have made it to the map. And even as queer people disperse from recognized neighborhoods, they cluster and form new neighborhoods in areas not traditionally mapped as queer. There are more neighborhoods than you'll ever find in a travel guide. Gaziani cites multiple pieces of research to back his claim that neighborhoods function more like archipelagos than they do singular sites within a city. First, he uses U.S. Census data to examine the geographical distribution of lesbians, noting that census data only captures information from same-sex couples, not individuals. What the data reveals is clear. Lesbian couples do exhibit geographical clustering behavior. They just appear to be less visible because they often exist outside traditional neighborhoods and less urban areas. Same-sex lesbian couples reside in both traditional neighborhoods like Provincetown, where they make up 5.1% of all households, as well as outside of them, in areas not traditionally recognized as neighborhoods. Only 12% of LGBTQ Americans aged 18 and above currently live in a neighborhood. Like lesbians, 
queer people of color often reside outside popularly known neighborhoods. Black same-sex couples, for example, are more likely to live in areas where other black people concentrate than where other specifically LGBTQ people live. Case in point, same-sex black couples are disproportionately concentrated in Baltimore City, Maryland, where they make up 4.15% of 1,000 households, and Lee County, South Carolina, where that number stands at 3.69%. Lee County, South Carolina isn't exactly a well-known neighborhood. Parts of that county nonetheless exhibit a key element of a neighborhood, residential concentration. Zip codes associated with traditional neighborhoods are largely white, Gaziani writes. The assumption of spatial singularity is epistemologically harmful because it ignores the spatial capital and creative placemaking efforts of queer people of color. This includes youth of color, many of whom respond to the racial exclusions of the neighborhood by building separate communities. By focusing on historically celebrated neighborhoods, sociologists run the risk of ignoring both old and new neighborhoods of color. Meanwhile, trans people are often excluded from conversations about the neighborhood entirely. Disproportionately low income, they often lack the capital needed to live in traditional neighborhoods. They report discrimination from both straight people and cis gays in neighborhoods. Even then, trans people can form their own cultural islands simply by sharing residential space together, an apartment, a building, wherever it may be. The existence of other neighborhoods out there also provides a source of comfort. Gaziani cites a recent study that found if you know your city has a neighborhood and you self-identify as trans, you're more likely to think your city is safer for trans people even if you don't necessarily feel all that safe in the neighborhood, When the neighborhoods of queer people of color, women, and trans folks are included, the neighborhood no longer looks passe. It looks vibrant. It's more diffuse than traditionally conceptualized. Throw in digital queer neighborhoods, and the number of islands on the LGBTQ archipelago multiplies. Critics have long blamed the rise of digital queer culture for the supposed demise of the neighborhood. Because many queer people have access to mobile technology and no longer need to find one another in bars, the argument goes, the need for neighborhoods diminishes. This thesis isn't without merit. New York, once an oasis of lesbian bars, now only has three. Los Angeles has zero lesbian bars. San Francisco, also zero. Seriously. But instead of looking at digital culture from a deficit-based perspective, consider reframing. Digital neighborhoods continue to thrive. Between Grindr and Scruff and Her, there are now dozens of location-based dating apps that bring people together in different zip codes. Unlike historical neighborhoods, which tend to be white, digital neighborhoods are often more open to diversity, giving room for trans and POC queers to connect. Here's how Gaziani describes it. You can queer any given space by logging on to see any queers near you. It undermines the traditional neighborhood as the sole locus. Many more areas of the city can now function as queer spaces because of digital culture. The article then says, let's say you agree with Gaziani's central thesis that neighborhoods aren't dying. They simply exist in an archipelago. If you've grown up in and around a traditional neighborhood, you might still experience the transformation of some of these neighborhoods as a loss. These centralized neighborhoods once provided very powerful political functions. Having a residential concentration of queer people in particular parts of the city means we can exert political influence. Sexuality is unlike other major demographic characteristics, Gaziani adds. It's not visible on the body in the same way. So the visibility functions of queer spaces is still very important for queer people to feel like they exist. So, in effect, the gay neighborhood is not dead or dying at all. It is evolving the same way culture is. 
I always use the jukebox at Julius in the West Village as an example of living LGBT history because it has current hits as well as many of the classic tracks of Divas from Liza to Barbara to show tunes. And although it is not trapped in amber, it is definitely rooted in the past. It recently received historical landmark status and draws tourists from around the world. My most recent example is from a visit to Long Island, not too far away from New York City. And while having some pastry at an outdoor cafe with my brother and sister-in-law, I was spotted and cruised by a younger gay man who was waiting for his companion to arrive. My sister-in-law gave me the big nudge and said, huh, yeah, yeah, see, see, and I had to acknowledge. Out gay men cruising each other on 7th Street and Garden City was unheard of when I was that fellow's age. And by the way, he was cute and it was flattering. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And as the kitties say, peace out.